What does our culture tell us to live for today? When you look at social media, shows, movies, and music, what is the overall message with how we should be living our lives? I did a brief search of some current song lyrics that are popular today. I don't recommend you look up these artists, but one of the top songs by an artist named Lil Uzi, he, uh, he says in the chorus of one of his songs, he says, now I do what I want, I do what I want. This song explains how the singer has got to the point in his life that he is rich and famous so he can do anything that his heart desires. The other one by uh, an artist named Ariana Grande says, and this is great, I want it, I got it, I want it, I got it, I want it, I got it, you like my hair, gee thanks, just bought it, I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it, yeah. (laughs) Don't ask me to sing that for you. Looking at these songs, they seem pretty far-fetched and ridiculous, but I think Deep down in the heart of every one of us, there's a desire for complete autonomy. Now, autonomy is the quality or state of ruling oneself and being able to take anything we desire. We don't have to answer to anyone. We can be the kings and queens of our own little worlds. If we can get to the top of our world, we can take anything that we want. Many associate complete autonomy with what true freedom is, And I think this is what's driving our modern culture today. No one can tell us what to do with our bodies, who we marry, or even how we die. A question we often ask in student discussions is, can money buy happiness? There are many that say this is possible because if we have unlimited money, then we can buy whatever our heart desires. Well, how does the way the culture tells us to live fit in with what the Bible says? In our passage this morning from Titus chapter 2, We see the Christian is called to be living a life submitting to authority and in a self-controlled way. The Christian life should not be guided by our fleshly desires and impulses, but in submission to Jesus as our king. Unfortunately, I couldn't really find any top hits that deal with the theme of submission and self-control. You can let me know if you find any good ones that deal with that, those themes. So I, I preached Titus 1 back in April. Um, and we're going to look at Titus chapter 2 today. So Titus is right after 2 Timothy and before Philemon and Hebrews, just at the end of your Bible. So um, it will greatly help you if you turn there and follow along with me as we go through this passage together. As you're turning there, I want to give you a little background and refresher uh, on this letter. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a man named Titus in the early 60s A.D., Uh, Titus is not an apostle, but he is a co-worker with Paul in the gospel. Paul sees Titus as a family family member as he refers to him as a true child in the faith in chapter 1. Paul may have even had a hand in leading Titus to faith. Uh, We're not sure on that. Um, Paul and Titus preached the gospel on the island of Crete, which is an island off the coast of Greece. Many have come to faith in Jesus and Crete. And so churches have been formed, and Paul has left Titus in Crete to establish elders in these various churches. So you see that from verse 5 of chapter 1. Crete was heavily influenced by Greek mythology, and they believed that the gods were once men and women born in Crete. The culture of Crete was known for deceit, self-indulgence, and laziness. You see that from verse 12 of chapter 1. 
and they were false teachers encouraging the Christians that, that they could also live this kind of lifestyle as Christians. Due to the culture and false teaching, Paul has an urgent tone in this letter. He's urging Titus to find qualified men to teach the truth and protect the church from false teaching and lifestyles that contradict the truth of God. In chapter 1, Paul deals with the qualifications for elders and what they're called to do. In chapter 2, he gets into how believers are called to live their lives and the qualities that they should be reflecting, as well as how the gospel should be currently changing the lives of believers. So the overall theme of, this le- of the letter of Titus is right teaching or doctrine should lead to living a righteous life. So follow along with me as we read from Titus chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 2 all the way to the, the end of chapter 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behaviors, reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves of much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound in speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. We see from this passage that God's grace appearing should cause us as Christians to live differently in this world. So I have two points for us this morning with some application throughout. Our, our first point is we should be a people who submit to authority and are self-controlled. So we as a people should be a people who submit to authority and are self-controlled. And then God's grace of salvation should be causing us to pursue holiness. God's grace of salvation should be causing us to pursue holiness. So first point, submit to authority and be self-controlled. In chapter 1, Paul addresses the character qualities and job responsibilities of the elders. In chapter 2, he addresses the various Uh, stages of people in the church. We have older men and women, young men and women, masters and servants. As we go through some of the categories of these people, many of these character qualities should be shared by all Christians, just as the character of elders should be something that all Christians should aspire to as well. So first in verse two, older men. We don't know exactly what age Paul is talking about here. Maybe um, some commentary said uh, could be 60 years old or older. During the time of Paul, 
Paul's writing life expectancy was generally shorter, so it could be younger than we would expect. But what is supposed to mark the older man's, uh, older men's lives in the church here? We could sum it up by saying the older men's life is called to be self-controlled. The theme of self-control is pretty much in every category Paul is addressing in these sections. Why do you think Paul emphasizes self-control? Well, as humans, we struggle with contentment. Just as we saw in the song lyrics at the beginning, and we can think that if we just get this or that or achieve this in this life, we'll be satisfied. God wants us to trust that he will satisfy all our desires ultimately. So in our earthly lives, we can say no to the temporary pleasures of sin. So the, the older man's life should, be, should also be worthy of honor and respect. He's to be sober-minded. He should not be addicted to alcohol. He should, not, he should be able to think rightly and clearly without having substances affecting his mind. Lastly, Paul says that these men should be sound in the faith, love, and in steadfastness, or other translations would say endurance. Why is it important for older men to show these characteristics in this context? Remember, the strong pagan culture and the false teachers around would encourage people to give themselves over to whatever they desire. The culture would say things like, it's okay to bend the truth. It's okay to lie. Think about even our, uh, our culture that we're living in here in the UAE. It's common and even commended to be dishonest and trick. Many societies would say it's okay to have a little more if it feels good, a little more food, a little more drink, a little more sleep. Take revenge. It'll feel good to take justice into your own hands. Why does it matter? And we see that the older men should be exemplifying just the opposite character. And then we move to verses 3 and 4. Older women. Paul addresses older women in a similar way when he says likewise. So we have some similarities here. They should be reverent in behavior, or we could say that's pretty much the same thing as being dignified and respectable. They should also not be under the influence of too much alcohol, but sober-minded. And it's interesting that Paul says that they should not be slaves of much wine. So God's good gifts of food and drink can easily become our master's. God wants us to enjoy good gifts that he gives us, but we cannot let them rule over us. Any alcoholic who is seeking to rid himself of the addiction can honestly say that he's seeking to free himself or herself from enslavement. We see today how many people become addicted to things that are good, like food and drink. Paul also mentions slandering, or another translation could be gossip. So what is gossip? What is slander? I think a good definition is making false or damaging statements about someone. I don't think Paul is saying every older woman in Crete did this or struggled with this, but generally, he's generally speaking, it was more of a problem for the older women of the churches to gather and talk with, about people in, in ways that were not beneficial, but actually damaging to the people they were talking about, as well as the listeners. In contrast, the speaking poorly of others, they should be seeking to train and teach young, young women how to love for and care for their families. So what are older women to be doing here? I think we see they're called to be discipling. They are teaching and doing spiritual good to the young women in the church. And I just say, older women in this church, are you investing in younger women in, in our church, in our body? 
Do you bring young women into your life seeking to encourage and counsel them? I know many of you are, and I want to encourage you to keep doing this. You're investing in the lives of people, and that has eternal benefits. And then in verse 5, we come to young women. What should, what should the young women look like as a result of being trained by the older women? Again, we see self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their husbands. The young woman's life should be a life of purity. I think in this context, so young women married, so they should be faithful in their marriage. I think also uh, in uh, our context with a lot of um, single women here, I think uh, women, you should be seeking a life of purity as well, even as, as a single. You should be showing a life of holiness and pursuing purity in all the relationships that you're involved in. And then we also see that uh, the wife should be working at home. Does this mean that a woman should never work outside the home? I don't think that that's what Paul is saying here. Paul is not giving a command here that women are required to work at home and cannot work outside the home. We see that uh, throughout the scripture in Proverbs, uh, the woman, the godly woman working outside the home, we see examples of Lydia and Acts and then Yodia and Syntyche and Philippians did work outside the home. Most likely they had families. I don't think we can say that a woman with a family who's working a normal job is sinning or less godly than a woman who's staying at home and not working outside. We also should be careful to think that a woman who is homeschooling is more godly or doing family in the right way. At the same time, even if a woman is working a normal job, she is called to love and care for her family in a different way than the husband would. Generally speaking, she will have more time and care with the kids than the husband would. We see that the woman with a family has a significant role and responsibility that she needs to carry out to her her family, either as a working mom or as a stay-at-home mom. Neither is more biblical than the other. Another aspect of the young woman is she is called to submit to her husband. Now, submission is generally viewed negatively in our cultures. Who wants to submit? That sounds like you're weaker or lesser. And we see that Paul is calling the women to submit. This is the woman's role. Just as we saw in chapter 1, men are called to be elders and lead in the church. So, um, uh, so men are called to lead and help women to submit to the husband's authority in the home. We see Paul tackle this issue in more depth in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. As we will see with masters and servants, we all have areas in our lives we need to submit. Submission is not a negative uh, concept in the Bible. Submitting does not make you any less valuable compared to the man. In fact, it adorns the gospel and magnifies God's word. At the end of verse 5, Paul says, submit to the word of God that the word of God will not be reviled. Why would not submitting to your husband revile God's word? The best example, I think, of submission that we see in the scripture is Jesus himself. The son, as a human being, submitted to the will of the father and coming to the world to die for sinners. Up to right before Jesus' death, he asked the father to take away the cup from him, but not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus submitting to the father does not make him any lesser than the father, but it shows the beauty of the relationship. In the same way, the authority and submission of a husband and wife in a godly way reflects God's character and is beautiful. 
The question then comes up, okay, so should the woman submit in everything? I think we see from Scripture that ultimately we're called first and foremost to submit to God. So if a husband is domineering, harsh, abusive, and calling his wife to to sin, she should not submit to this. Women, if you are married to an unbeliever and your husband forbids you from going to church, you should still go to church. If your husband is harming you verbally, you should seek out help for this. If he's harming you physically, you should remove yourself from the harm. You should contact the elders of your church and many times get the local police involved. If your husband wants you to get an abortion, you should not submit to that. We know we live in a broken world with messed up relationships, but as believers, we should seek to reflect the nature of God in our relationships. Husbands should seek to love and lead their families, and women are called to help and submit. And this is God's good design that we see all the way back in the beginning from Genesis 2. We go from, then we go from older women being called not to revile other people through slander to young women not reviling God's word through lack of submission to their husbands. I think we see Christians are called to live in such a different way than the world around us. So verse 6, young men, I love this. This is a really short section. Self-control. Women are given six things to do and and young men one. Really fair. Young young men just need to focus on one thing, self-control. Young men need simple, short, and clear directions. My wife can attest to this. Uh, When she has directions that are longer than one sentence, I'm very lost. So the word self-controlled, this word self-controlled is is talking about refraining from acting impulsively and being a focused mind. It's actually the same word that describes the the demoniac from Mark 5 after he's healed. He's clothed and in his right mind. I can confidently say young men have more of a tendency to lack self-control and say and do impulsive things. Growing up, I struggled with giving myself over to my anger. Mostly what caused me to get angry when I was younger was sports and not performing the way that I wanted or a team that I was watching uh, lost. I'd get angry and just give myself over to my anger in this way. And as a non-Christian, I would really not fight against it. Um, And when I started following Jesus, I've had to fight and continue to this day to strive for self-control when circumstances don't go my way. My flesh tells me that I'll feel better if I give myself over to my anger and throw this object across the room or if I use foul language. And even at times as a Christian, I have given myself over to this anger, but I need to strive against these desires because of God's grace appearing. And we'll see more about that in in the second section um, when we come to verse 11. And then we come uh, in verses 7 to 8 to Titus. So Paul moves from this brief comment on young men to Titus, who probably was in the category of young since Paul brackets his commands to young men with Titus. Titus is called to be a model of good works, and his teaching should match his life, which we see the theme of the letter. Just like the elder's teaching in chapter 1 needs to be sound and trustworthy, it's the same for Titus. His teaching is to be sound, that opponents will have nothing evil to say about him, Paul or the churches. The opponents possibly could be the the false teachers or even the the pagan Cretans um, that 
uh, would be against Titus and Paul and, and the churches there in Crete. And then in 9 and 10, we have slaves and masters. Paul's last category is the working relationships of, of masters and servants, or the actual translation is literally slaves. Now remember, the Bible never endorses or commends slavery. It deals with society and culture as it was, emphasizing the responsibility of people and the world with which they live. So Paul is not tackling getting rid of slavery here, but he's speaking to real-life situations in society and where Christians were living in that time. And we see that uh, servants are given commands here. They are not to be argumentative. They're not to talk back in a disrespectful way to their masters. Secondly, they're not to pilfer or steal from their masters. How the servants work and interact with their masters and those in authority over them should reflect the gospel in their lives. It should make the gospel attractive to their masters. They're showing that their belief in the truth is changing the way they live and work. Paul says in Colossians that we should work as unto the Lord and not for men. If we are working to please the Lord, we will show honor and respect to our bosses. So in summary of this section, Christians are called to live a different way from the culture. We are called to disciple one another to be reflecting the truth of God's word in our lives. Our lives to demonstrate and show Christ is in us. Now let's think of some application with these different categories. I'm going to go through each category of people here, but again, most of these uh, application points could apply to any Christian. So first we have older men. Are you an older man here? I won't make you raise your hand. Don't worry. Uh, I'll let you figure that out. Is your life marked by self-control? As you have aged, have you matured in godliness? Is your life marked by endurance and perseverance in the Christian life? How can you grow in this? Take some time this week and write down these different qualities and think about, are you exemplifying them in your life? Or are there areas you need to grow in some of these qualities? Then meet with another man from this church and brainstorm ways you can grow in self-control, sober-mindedness, faith, love, and endurance. Older women, what is your speech like? Do you tear down others or do you seek to encourage and build others up? Something to think about as you're talking with others is this. Would the person you're talking about be okay to hear what you're saying about them? Or is what you're saying to that person you're talking about beneficial to them? Is it helpful to them? I think a, a, a good way to think about it is what I'm saying, is it kind? Is it necessary? Is it beneficial? Again, ask another woman from this church if they think that you gossip or slander. Uh, a way to help in this is to seek to memorize scripture that talks about guarding your tongue. James 3 and Proverbs are great places to start. Psalm 19:14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Young women, are you submitting to your husband? Is your life marked by caring for and loving your family? How we respond to authority shows how we respond to God's authority. If you're struggling knowing how to submit, seek out counsel and advice from either from other godly women in the church or come talk to me or one of the elders here. Young men, are you guided by emotions and feelings instead of being self-controlled? Seek to build habits in your life that cause you to be disciplined and self-controlled. 
Have a Bible reading plan. Have a prayer time. Exercise. Read good Christian books. There's a great book I'd recommend to all of you called Thoughts for Young Men by J.C. Ryle. Might be in the bookstore. Not totally sure. Um, But it's a wonderful book. Read it with another man from this church. Are you enslaved to pornography, video games, laziness, or overeating? Are these things ruling your life? If you're a Christian, you have a greater power in you that is in this world. That doesn't mean it won't be hard to deny your fleshly desires, but we do have the power to stop being enslaved because we have a new master. So let's seek to, to do this together. Now, those of us that are employed, mostly all of us, are you submitting to the authority of your boss? Even if your boss is really annoying or a micromanager, how do you respond to him or her? Do you gossip about him with other employees? Do you only work while being watched? Start praying for your boss and ask God to give you a heart of compassion and submission to his or her authority. If you are a boss, how do you care for those uh, that you're leading or those under you? Do you speak harshly and disrespectfully to those under you? Or do you seek to encourage and build up the employees under your rule? And then lastly, we see kind of the theme of discipleship here. If you're, if you're a member of this church, are you involved in a discipleship relationship? I don't want you to be intimidated by that word. Discipleship is simply seeking to help one another spiritually follow Christ. Every one of us needs people in our lives we can be open with, confess sin, and pray together. The pattern we see implied from this passage is generally men will disciple men and women women. And I would challenge and encourage you to seek out someone this week to meet with regularly to encourage and help each other grow. If you need help with us, please come talk with me uh, after the service. All right, point number two. God's grace of salvation should cause us to pursue holiness. So verse 11 through 15. In light of this last section and Paul calling believers to live in a certain way that is countercultural, we don't live this self-controlled way because we're just trying to be good or so that God will approve of us, but because of God's grace appearing. If you leave today and you think you just need to change habits or behaviors to be more self-controlled, you've missed the main point of the sermon. We are only able to do any of this because of God's grace appearing. So what is God's grace appearing? God's grace is his free gift. It's unmerited. You can't do anything for it. You can't do anything to earn God's salvation. Now, what's this salvation? What's this saving from? This saving is from God's infinite wrath that we all deserve because of our wickedness. God saves us from his wrath through Jesus coming, living the perfect life, and giving his life on the cross in the place of sinners like us. Since Jesus died for our sins and raised again on the third day, we can be saved. We don't have to go to hell, but we can go to heaven and be with God forever in perfect fellowship. We can have all our sins forgiven, past, present, and future. This great salvation is available to all people. Uh, Some people would take uh, this verse to say, eventually all people will be saved, but I don't think it can be saying that because um, the majority of people will not be saved. We see that from many other parts of Scripture. I think this is saying salvation is available to anyone who would believe. 
anyone can hear the message of Christ and believe. Maybe you're here today and you've grown up in a Christian home. That doesn't mean that you're a Christian. That doesn't mean that you're trusting in Christ. Do you think you have to earn your way to God by being religious or good? Or that you have to clean up your life in order for God to save you? Remember, God's salvation is a free gift God offers through Jesus. We receive this gift through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit works in our dead hearts and causes us to have faith in Christ. We are celebrating uh, at the end of the service today the baptism of Yannick. And baptism is a command of Jesus that all Christians should joyfully obey. But the act of physical baptism is not what saves. Yannick is already saved and adopted into God's family. What he is doing today is declaring that he is a follower of Jesus. This water under the stage here does not make anyone pure or righteous before God. It's symbolic of our faith in Christ, and it's a matter of obedience. Only trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus is what makes us right before God. Just as Jesus calls his disciples at the beginning of Mark to follow him, he doesn't tell them they need to clean up their lives first and become more religious or better people. He calls them as they are. Then he tells them, I will make you become fishers of men. We'll pick up uh, more about that in the next couple of verses. But God changes our hearts and our desires when he saves us. A few years ago, when I first started reading the Bible with Richard, uh, and I asked him if he thought he was a Christian, one of the things that made him doubt that he was a Christian was that he smoked cigarettes. Sorry to, I don't know where Richard is, but yeah. Sorry, Richard. Give your secrets away. Um, He thought if he just stopped smoking, he would be saved. Now, it is a great thing to stop smoking. Um, I'd encourage that. But that is not what separates us from God. Richard needed to see that there was no outward behavior that he could change that would make him righteous before God. He needed God's grace to produce a changed heart. Thankfully, eventually God's grace of salvation worked in Richard's life, and he truly repented and believed. Verse 12, God's grace of free salvation trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And on the positive side, it trains us to be self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age. What are ungodliness and worldly passions? Well, it'd be any desires that are contrary to God's word, anything we elevate above God. I'd encourage you later today, this afternoon, to read Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, and, and see what this passage, how this ex- passage explains what ungodliness and worldly passions are. The Bible is pretty clear about uh, those who are suppressing the truth. So that's what we see from that passage there. Um, The natural person is suppressing the truth of God in their hearts. This can be even those who profess to know God, but are living a life contrary to God's word. For example, living a homosexual lifestyle, or sleeping with your girlfriend, or being unfaithful to your spouse, or stealing money or possessions from your work, or anything else you're elevating above God. It is the hard-heartedness of sin to actively do and pursue these things and say, God is fine with this. God is okay with this. This shows that the individual is not repentant and is refusing to be changed by the gospel. So do you think you're a Christian and your life does not match what the Bible says a Christian is? 
Do you willfully sin, excuse, and rationalize it and think God will forgive me? Do you twist scripture to approve sin in your life? Uh, this summer, I listened to a biography uh, of, uh, on Johnny Cash. He's a um, really famous uh, American singer. And uh, he was unfaithful to his wife by having multiple affairs during uh, his marriage. And he ultimately left his wife. And he rationalized his decisions by saying, God wants me to be happy because he was unhappy with his first wife. And I think this is the road that leads to death if there's no repentance. It's picking and choosing what you want to follow from God's word. First John 2, 4 says that whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his word is a liar and the truth is not in him. So receiving God's grace, God's salvation through Jesus will produce a changed life that turns away from your sin and hates your sin. So if you fit either of these categories that we've talked about, trying to earn your salvation by being good or religious, or taking advantage of God's grace by excusing your sin, both of these categories, I would urge you to turn from your sin and put your trust in Christ today. Verses 13 and 14, what what do we see the Christian's hope is? The Christian is waiting for Jesus to return. We see from this verse that Jesus is clearly God. The same way Paul describes God the Father in verse 10 is how he describes Jesus in this verse. Despite all the end time predictions of Jesus' return, this has not happened yet. In the last couple of verses, the grace of God has appeared as Jesus has come into the world, died, and resurrected. So those that trust in this truth are saved. It is the present reality for the believer. The hope for the Christians is certainty and confidence. Just as we are certain that Jesus died and resurrected, he will return in glory. What does it mean to wait for the return of Christ? It does not mean that we do nothing and are passive, but it actually should motivate us to work hard and to fight against sin in our lives and work for the advancement of the gospel because Jesus is returning. We are called to wait actively. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. One commentator states, redeemed implies purchase from or state of, redeemed implies purchase from a state of bondage or condemnation. So Jesus frees us from our wickedness and sin. Just as we saw in verse three that the older women should not be enslaved by wine, Jesus purchases his people, so he is our new master. Before anyone trusts in Jesus, we are enslaved to Satan. We're enslaved to our sin. When Jesus purchases us, we become his possession. He purifies us and changes us to be zealous for good works. If you're zealous for something, that means you're excited about it. It's a deep desire in your heart. If you really know someone, right, you find out what they're zealous about. Is it cars? Is it sports? Is it exercise? Is it shopping? Is it traveling? All these things are are fine and good. But are you zealous to serve and reach out to non-believers with the gospel? Or seek to disciple people in this church? Or to form habits of spiritual growth in your life? We don't strive to do good works to make ourselves look better or to earn God's favor. But we are zealous for good works because we have been saved. And we are part of God's family as a result of our salvation. 
And I think this is one of the main differences between Christianity and all other religions and faiths. Other religions and worldviews call people to follow the list of rules, earn God's favor, or reach enlightenment, or just be good in your own eyes according to yourself. But according to the Bible, God produces in us a heart change that transforms our very desires and motivations. We love and are zealous because of his initiating love and redeeming us. One of the biggest ways that I could tell this had happened in my life was that God changed my desires. Before I had no desire to come to church, to fellowship with God's people. I had no desire to read God's word. And then when God saved me, it just changed. All of a sudden, I wanted to uh, know God. I wanted to understand his word. I wanted to be with his people, to grow. Then we, we see Titus is called to proclaim these things at the end here. He's called to exhort, rebuke with all authority. And the church should listen to Titus. Titus's job will be challenging. He has to teach, challenge, and rebuke people in Crete. But his authority doesn't come from himself. His authority comes from God, ultimately, as he follows uh, Paul's teaching and Paul's example. And think about all the times that Paul had to rebuke in his letters. He had to rebuke the apostle Peter one time. And he's, you know, he wasn't doing this to try to be mean. He's doing this out of love and a zealousness for the gospel, for Christ. And Titus should follow in Paul's way. If people are disregarding Titus's authority, they're disregarding Paul's authority and ultimately the Lord's. So in closing, how is the grace of God appearing affected your life? Are you zealous to live for Christ? Jesus gave himself for us so that we could be forgiven and adopted into his family. Not only are we forgiven and adopted, but our desires are changed to hate sin in our lives and pursue godliness. We are still in process of growing, though, so let's seek to help one another along this journey until our blessed hope of Jesus returns in glory.